Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Nice to see you. If we haven't met, I think I said this earlier, but my name's Scott, and I am often around here at Commons and Inglewood each and every week, and so good to see you. And we don't take it lightly that you have decided to spend a little bit of your weekend with us, so thank you for that. And as we are getting going this morning, a quick shout out to everybody who was able to join us last week as we celebrated a bit of a birthday here. We shared some cake and we had our parish friends from in Kensington, they sent us a video, which was kind of fun. It was an opportunity for us to take a second and acknowledge the ways that our lives have been stretched by this work we've been doing for a year now as a community. The friendships that have become deeper as we have been sharing the journey and also the incredible potential that's ahead for our community in this neighborhood and those around it. And with that said, we've experienced some growth here, which is wonderful, and, that come, and with that comes the fun challenge of learning how to serve more people well. And we don't do this often, but I do want to let you know about three specific areas where you could get involved. Maybe this is part of a new year, you're making next steps, and I just want to make you aware of a couple of things. So here they are. First, Keely and our great kids team here at Commons are looking for three to four more people to help with our growing numbers of small, young Commonsers. This past fall, we've had several weeks where there were more than 30 kids in the room, sometimes as many as 40, which is like a third of the people in the room, which is wonderful. And we have some exciting changes coming for kids ahead of us this year, and having some extra hands to help along the way is important as we hope and learn to tell the story of Jesus well to those who are youngest here. So, in addition to that, we are looking for two to three friendly people to join our connection team, welcoming and helping to create space for everybody who joins us here on Sunday. This is something that we all want to be committed to, right? Being friendly shouldn't be an exclusive thing. But our connection team is sort of like a front lines part of our community that adds an extra hands-on experience to the way that people who are new to our community experience our church. And finally, our production team. They're looking for a couple of people to help out behind the scenes with their screens and the lights that are shining in my face right now. This is an important area of our community as well because this team helps us communicate clearly and it also enhances the worship experience for everybody who joins us. Now we talk regularly about how joining a team like this can be a really productive step into community and that's because we see connections form all the time as people learn to serve together. But especially as the new year begins. And with more growth and opportunity ahead of us, we want you to know some specific needs that we have and some key ways that you can contribute to the life of this community in its infancy. And so, if you're interested in that, the easiest thing to do is head over to commons.life on your phone, or you can do it at the Connection Center before you go today, and go and click on the Volunteer tab. And there you see a list of all these teams. You can just let us know how it works for you to be involved, and the conversation goes from there. So thank you to those those of you who are already giving so much, and those of you who are maybe thinking about being involved and stepping into new places with us, thank you. Now, last week, we started this series called Friendship, where over the next few weeks, we're thinking about this huge part of our lives. And we talked about how we'd probably be hard-pressed, each and every one of us, to define friendship. That is, without referring to someone in our story or referring to a film that we recently watched. And just like our films and books, explore the different ways that we share life as friends. 
our lived experience is probably a little varied. I mean, whether we find connections in our workplace or in some leisure in our lives or when someone's character or their tenacity it captures our heart in a unique way. In all these and others, we find friendships as an exclusive practice. They're founded on this common love or appreciation for a certain thing. And I quoted C.S. Lewis to you last week, and his, in his work on friendship, he has this really helpful analogy where he says that lovers could be said to always be standing face to face. And in their shared gaze, the fixation of the relationship is the other person. Whereas he suggests, friends stand shoulder to shoulder, where common interest and affection might be shared, but it's directed at something out in the world, some shared burden or joy, perhaps. And the point is that these connections form around exclusive things, like our love for a bad sports team, or a shared, albeit obscure, hobby, or maybe a long history with someone based on coming from the same town, or knowing some of the same people, experiencing the same loss, or liking the same food. And when we lean into these, our friendships take us from being in a group to being beside someone. And this separateness that we experience there can be a joy or it can be a sorrow for us for lots of reasons. And part of why we talked about this idea is so that we can take honest stock of the choices that our friendships call us into. To share my life with some and not others. And also to consider which friendships need me to choose them again, or those that seem to need me to let them go. Learning to discern these things is part then of how we ended up looking at the story of Jesus and Lazarus, and how Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead gets held up as this cornerstone of the Gospel of John. But how easy it is then for us, when we come to this story, it's easy for us to overlook the fabric of friendship that's at the core of the story. Because, listen, if we don't acknowledge that Jesus was hosted at Lazarus' house frequently, or how the conversations in this story that we read, how they're so emotionally charged, or how Jesus starts crying when he sees his friends grieving, or how the onlookers in the story saw the emotion in Jesus, they saw that as a sign of the deep connection between Jesus and Lazarus. If we don't acknowledge these things, then we miss the point, which is straightforward. That Lazarus doesn't get raised unless he's Jesus' friend. Which is another way that maybe we can start to think about the ways that resurrection and renewal and flourishing life, the things that Jesus talks about in the Gospels and the things that Jesus came to spark and bring to the world. These things, just like they did for Lazarus and his sisters in the story, they come to us in the hearts and the hands, the tears and the laughter of our friends where we are brought from places of illness and darkness and all the little deaths we feel every day. We're brought to life because someone leans in and calls us friend. So I hope that you were awake to these relationships in your life as you pushed into this last week and you found some comfort there. But today, we're actually gonna be talking about vulnerability and how one of Jesus's connections, specifically in a story, shows us this. But first, before we get going too far, let's pray together. Would you join me now? God, we are grateful for the ways that you are present to us now. 
In the sacrament of community, we are made more whole as we see ourselves clearly, as we learn to love each other. Your grace pressing through in it all. And so we ask that you would guide us, stirring ancient words and our fragile hearts, bringing all to life. In the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, so... Last week, we talked about this Greek philosopher, Aristotle, who argued that there was three kinds of friendship. Those based on utility, those based on pleasure, and finally, those based on virtue. And Aristotle thought that this third option was preferred because friendships based on a common admiration of someone's character, those relationships tend to last longer than the other ones that are just utilitarian or based on pleasurable experiences. They bring out the best in us, which is notable. You know, when a father of Greek philosophers starts sounding like Dr. Phil, which is kind of what he does with those three. But the ancients aren't the only place that we can look for friendship wisdom, because I recently came across this graphic that some of you might have seen before. This breakdown of modern friendship brought to you by the philosophers over at HuffPost. And you can see that what they've tried to do is outline how different social media platforms would function as a friend. The basic premise, of course, is that you have died in a tragic incident with a gun. And Twitter and Facebook, they would create a hashtag for you and quickly notify everybody that they had actually seen it happen, hashtag breaking news. Instagram would provide the best filtered photo of you, complete with the tag murdergram. LinkedIn would check to see how this situation was going to affect your current employment situation. Pinterest would generate a board of recipes you loved in your memory. And all of these platforms would let the whole world know how much they missed you now that you died which is great, right? It's kind of humorous. The catch, as you might have noticed, is that none of these platforms could do anything to actually help you. And the writers know that none could have stepped in front of the bullet for you. And I suppose that for most of us, the social commentary is pretty apparent here. We get that online friend forms and the connections we create and maintain there, they have their limits. And we're learning more and more about the ways that these things connect us, how these platforms help us, but also how they can leave us feeling empty and disengaged from each other. But it's worth noting how this graphic points to something at the heart of friendship that we don't, we don't often consider. And the joke, if you will, of it, it hinges on the same premise, that being that our social media platforms and most of our relationships there, they can't ever actually intervene or save or rescue us because they don't have any skin in the game. They're anything but vulnerable. They aren't present to the uncertainty, the risk, and the exposure of our lives, which is the idea that we're going to wrestle with today. And it's important because so many of us, when we think about our friendships, and especially those that matter most, we'd probably acknowledge that our closest friends have been those who've been with us and around us in our moments of greatest uncertainty. They're closest because of their proximity to our mistakes or our pain or some shame-filled moment that we have. Sometimes friendships form as people step toward us, but maybe you have friendships defined by you moving towards someone else in a dark situation, professional dilemma, a harmful relationship, a chronic illness, and you disclosed your struggle then, or you told them how you'd gone through a similar thing, or you told them about your same error in judgment that had led to the same drastic circumstances. The point is that we would all do well to recognize that the healthiest relationships we have are those marked by this kind of movement, 
this stepping toward. And one of the easiest ways to identify the right kinds of friendships is to pay attention to who's stepping closer to us or graciously receiving us as we find the courage to do the same. And we're going to talk more about how to do this well in a second, but for most of us, this is what we need to pay attention to. Proximity. Because it's a good indication of others' intentions, and it's a revealer of ours, too, if we pay attention to it. Often giving us an opportunity for the kind of vulnerability that steadies and secures our attachments to others. Now, at some level, what might be helpful for us when we think about vulnerability and its place in our friendships is to consider what it's not. And for this, this Brené Brown's work is super helpful. Some of you might be familiar with him. We have some of her work actually on our Commons bookshelf from time to time if you're interested in doing more of a deep dive. But one of the things that Brown's work contends is that we have a tendency to think of vulnerability as weakness. And what she and other practitioners do in their research is show how avoiding vulnerability is actually to avoid feeling. And feeling is at the core of all connection in our lives, which means that if we believe that our interior lives, our feelings, our emotional selves, if we believe that we're weak there, we believe that we're compromised in those parts of our lives, then we close ourselves off from the kinds of connections that we actually want, believing that we're safe. And as one author contends, we wrap ourselves then in protective layers to conceal our vulnerabilities. Layers that anything and everything that happens to us has to get through before we can feel what's going on. And I think that most of us as adults anyways, have, we've lived long enough to at least acknowledge how this kind of emotional mummification isn't the best for us. Either because we cared about somebody who told us how closed off we were, which is painful to hear probably, or because maybe we sometimes feel really limited in our ability to connect with others. And this is especially true if under the surface we actually believe that if we were to expose who we really are and share our feelings with another person, we would be weak and we'd be disempowered in doing so. Now, what's helpful about Brown's research is the fact that she actually asked people to define and describe what they felt vulnerability was. And because she was looking at all kinds of relationships, she got really diverse responses. People defined vulnerability as starting a new business or initiating intimacy with a partner or exercising in public. Totally get that one. These are, these are easy to see, right? But there are lots of responses that correlate to our experiences of friendship too where people said that vulnerability is defined by standing up for myself or asking for help or calling a friend who's going through a divorce or saying, I love you first, admitting that I'm afraid, choosing to be accountable to someone. And brilliantly, Brown asks her readers like us if those definitions, if they sound like weakness, if finally mustering the courage to name your need or demanding respect from someone if that's weakness, or if showing up to be with someone in crisis, even when you have no idea of what to say to make things better, is that weakness? Or if knowing that you need another set of eyes in your life, someone else's advice to hold you accountable, is asking someone for that, is that weakness? 
And I love how she summarizes this because Brown contends actually that, quote, vulnerability sounds like truth when it comes out and it feels like courage when we're experiencing it. And while truth and courage aren't always going to be present to us in comfortable ways, we need to let go of this idea that we stand in those places because we're weak. Now, if vulnerability isn't weakness, it's also important to point out that it isn't oversharing. And again, this is maybe something you've experienced, the passive-aggressive social media posts, or the person beside you on a flight, I've had this happen, who gives you a complete rundown of their current relationship crisis just because they know they're never gonna see you again. These, these things are easy to spot, right? But I think there's other examples that are a little bit harder to catch for us. Like when you and I find ourselves in a friendship where we're constantly accessing our emotions and we're sharing them without any reciprocation. And see, this is what psychologists and social commentators note. The connections of any kind aren't possible without some degree of openness and without, to some degree, the courageous step to be vulnerable in some way. But research on friendships since the 1970s has revealed that our ideal friends, yes, we're likely gonna have some shared something in common with them, but more importantly, there's this underlying reciprocity in our connection to them. And here's the deal, Beverly Fair, psychologist out of the University of Winnipeg, in her work on friendship processes, how we become and stay friends, she points to the fact that acquaintances become friendships as self-disclosure increases in its depth and its breadth, which probably makes sense to us. The key is that especially early on in our friendships, this needs to be a gradual process, and it has to be reciprocated to be the most healthy. And for most of us, this is because we have to learn how to offer our emotional expressiveness. And we have to learn how to listen to another person well. These are skills that we develop and they're space that we make in our hearts. And we do this best when we take our time when we honor someone by holding their story carefully, or when we honor ourselves by gently sharing, sharing our heaviest moments and experiences. See, oversharing has the same elements of risk that vulnerability does, but it lacks the self-awareness to seek someone else's measured response to them. And Oversharing wants reciprocity, but it overextends itself. It's in a rush. It's this kind of emotional overask that often makes other people feel awkward. And one of the clearest examples of this is something that I ran across just a few weeks ago. Maybe you've heard of them. They're called anonymous confession sites. And there's all kinds of them. From post-secret, where people share their secrets on one side of a postcard, and then it gets posted online to simplyconfess.com where people post dreams, fantasies, guilt they're carrying, or some truth about themselves. It's kind of an adult truth or dare site. And as you can imagine, some pretty dark stuff shows up. And there are some very real disclosures. And I encourage you to read at your own risk, obviously. And while scholars speculate on whether there's some value to be found in the solidarity that comes to us in sharing our secrets and getting online likes, what they warn us against is the kind of counterfeit vulnerability that these sites provide us as a venue 
for oversharing. Because the underlying premise is anonymity, not being known, which is the opposite of what it means to be vulnerable. And I get, this is an extreme example, I just stumbled across it, but what these sites can remind us of is how there aren't any shortcuts to the kinds of connections and the friendships that we long for. Maybe there's been times when you've overextended your emotions to somebody. You've pushed quickly into a friendship, offering that person no time to reciprocate. Or maybe you've offloaded some challenge or struggle without care and then you've been hurt by the distance that created in that friendship because that person didn't know how to adjust to the extra weight that was there now. Or maybe you've been on the other side. Maybe you've had others push towards you and you've held back just because it was too intense or maybe because you didn't know how to respond to somebody's emotion. Maybe because you didn't feel connected to your own feelings in those moments. The point isn't that we fail, that we try to avoid weakness in our friendships in the past, or that we're likely to overreach too quickly for connections that we hope to find in the future. That's going to happen. The challenge is to embrace the careful, time-consuming work of learning to be a friend, taking care with our hearts and offering safety to others. Letting courage to be honest grow in us as we begin to see that somebody respects us and finding new life in the true lasting reciprocity that can grow if we give it a chance. And it's here now that we then turn to the story of Jesus because just like we outlined last week, part of what we want to do in this series is discover the fabric of friendship in the Gospels, in the stories of Jesus' human life. And we talked a little bit about how Jesus seems to have constructed his social life like we do in, in, in increasingly concentric circles. They get smaller and smaller where he let the crowds close to him out here and then he invested in a little bit smaller group of large followers and then from there he invited 12 to be his helpers, and how then from among those 12, he shared his most intimate moments with three of those men. And starting today, we're gonna actually look at one of those three, Jesus' disciple and friend named Peter. He shows up a lot in the stories of the Bible, and some of what we wanna do is uncover the ways that Jesus' connection to him, it shows us a way forward. Which is why today, we're gonna pick up the Gospel of Mark, where we read, that Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples throw out some of the things that people are saying about Jesus. They're comparing him to some of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. But then Jesus asks, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Messiah. Now there's a couple of things happening in this super familiar passage. And one of them is the fact that Jesus is doing something really different here. See, in the teacher-pupil relationships of the ancient world, and specifically the Hebrew tradition, the disciples were those who sought out and asked the rabbis questions. Not unlike we're gonna see the rich young ruler approach Jesus in Mark 10 and ask what he can do to find God's best. Anyway, the point is that scholars note that Jesus is breaking with this tradition Jesus is asking the questions, and we're not, unsure, we're not sure why, but isn't it interesting that 
The idea that the divine son, the image of God in the world, would ask those closest to him, what are people saying about me? And then more poignantly, who do you guys think I am? And there's this powerful principle of friendship at work here, I think, that to some degree, we come to know ourselves in the vulnerability of our closest friendships. I actually think that's mostly what this story is about. See, we talked a couple weeks ago about these references in the story of Jesus when he was really young, how he grew up, how he developed, how he matured, how he discovered himself and he became self-aware, just like we do in the world. And scholars think that that's actually what's going on in this story because up to this point in Mark, Jesus has been teaching and he's been helping the crowds, but at some point, he seems to have realized that all this work he was doing, it was leading to somewhere. And so he asks his friends, guys, who do you think I am? And it's not a test to make sure that they know the Sunday school answer. No, he's asking them because he's making choices about who to be. And he's discovering what direction to take in his life. So then Peter blurts out, you're the Messiah. He's not just making a theological statement. He's telling Jesus what he sees in him. And like the best parts of our friendships, Jesus call, or Peter calls Jesus toward who he's meant to be. And this is a vulnerable moment for Jesus. First, to be seen and known to have someone say the thing about you that maybe you're too afraid to admit about yourself. But then, Jesus starts to unpack who he thinks he is in the next verses. And scholar Craig Evans notes that it seems that Jesus' messianic self-understanding, this self-awareness, has been informed by this mysterious heavenly figure from Daniel 7. Which is why, if you look at the verse here, Jesus is talking about being the son of man, which is just this riff from an Old Testament passage in the Hebrew Bible. See, Jesus believed, like his friends, yeah, I think I'm a prophet, but he'd come to a place where he realized that this journey to being Messiah, it wasn't going to end with him usurping Rome. He was going to be rejected, and he was going to die. And he just wanted to tell his friends that. And he didn't want to carry it alone. And maybe he wanted to know if they'd stick with him. So he takes the risk that they'll leave and that they'll reject him and he tells them plainly. The text says that he's honest with them. But then it tells us that Peter takes him aside. And like any good friend who wants the best for someone that they care about, Peter lays into Jesus. The Greek terminology in the text, it's really strong here. Peter is staging an intervention because Jesus is at risk of ruining his life. He's sacrificing his messianic potential. And then Jesus turns to him and he's direct with Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things, the mind of God, the concerns of God at heart. You're only thinking about human concerns, Jesus says. And there was this debate about this phrase here. But what we know is that this term Satan that Jesus used, it kind of makes us, takes us aback. It refers in the Hebrew tradition to all that was the antagonist and the oppressing in the world. The forces that worked against God's goodness and God's people wherever they were. Which if we use a lens of friendship then, has Jesus saying something more like, why are you opposing me, Peter? Can't you see the kind of Messiah that I am? 
don't you see the road that I think I'm supposed to go on? Can't you see that you're making it harder on me by resisting that? Which is a reminder of what all good friendships point us toward. Because just like Jesus, we will, if we live with courage and we make ourselves vulnerable and we make reciprocal connections, we will discover who we really are. And that might be in a journey of self-awareness, but it will also be in the beautiful moments when someone believes in us and tells us that we're going to make it or that our voice is worth hearing. I hope you have someone like that in your life. But then too, the story reminds us that even the best friendships, there we can sometimes, we can find that they make it hard on us to live authentically. Maybe we tell someone about some deep depression we're experiencing and they just try to cheer us up without accounting for where we are. Or maybe it happens when we let someone in on a major decision that we have to make on our career or a relationship that we're trying to work through, how it's overwhelming us and they just offer us quick advice. They send us a Wikipedia article. They tell us it's going to be fine. They try to figure it out for us. The point is that it's easy for this to happen because vulnerable moments are so challenging and awkward in friendship. But the point is that these kinds of responses, they're not helpful because they stifle who we are. And part of what this story shows us is that being someone's friend is to be called to these kinds of places of vulnerability. To take the risk that those who we love may not hear us well. Or worse, they may not stick with us. They might actually resist us when we're stepping out and trying to be our true selves. And here's the deal. Jesus' choice to be himself didn't make things go away. But what this snapshot with Peter shows us is that the courage it took for him to be vulnerable, to ask his friends for what they saw, and to share with his friends the fears he had of who he was meant to be. That courage didn't just galvanize his friendships with those people. It actually placed the power of vulnerability and friendship at the heart of the scripture's redemptive story. Where maybe today, as you hear it, you can find strength to move forward in whatever friendships you're in, because if redemption and newness that changed the world in Jesus was sparked by the details of his friendships, then maybe there's hope for you too. In moving closer, in letting go of weakness, in pushing for reciprocity, and in discovering who you were meant to be. Let's pray. God. We come to you now and we're grateful for the ways in which the text, it comes to us and you make it come alive in the mystery of community as your spirit works in each of our stories. We thank you for the things that we see clearly even as we sit here. The ways in which our friendships flash to mind, the ways in which our stories as we tell them, maybe they're being exposed and we're beginning to see the truth that you're calling us toward. And there's so many ways forward. There's no reason to prescribe what the next step is other than to say, God, we need your help. We need your grace to discern 
where proximity is present in our friendships. And we need your grace to perceive those places where we maybe have been oversharing, maybe we've been overstepping, those places that you're calling us to take our time, to let courage grow, and to let vulnerability cultivate in us the right kind of care. And obviously, as we look at the story of you and Peter, we're challenged to think about the ways that friendships, the best of them, they'll call us to be who we really are. And yet, too, what makes them hard sometimes is that sometimes we are placed in the vulnerable position where those closest to us are the ones resisting us. Would you give us courage to trust your kind work? Would you give us courage to know that we're not weak when we're choosing to extend love in vulnerability to others. These things we hold now and ask that you go with us in the name of Christ. Amen.